You're listening to Housing First, special programming from KMOJ about challenges and opportunities in housing so the community can thrive. Here's your host, Freddie Bell. Hello and thanks for joining me. A note before we dive in. We at KMOJ have been hard hit by the death of George Floyd. We mourn his loss and pray it will lead to systemic change and not just here in Minneapolis. Together with the COVID-19 virus, George Floyd's murder has exposed the consequences of historic racism. These recent events have made social and economic disparities sharper, and we'll be reporting on that in the future. The show you're about to hear was recorded and produced in early spring, before we knew about the virus. But I think you'll agree the issues and stories we're about to tell are more relevant than ever. As you may know, one of the greatest passions in life is to encourage individuals to fully realize the promise of their potential. And one thing I know for sure, for people to aim high, work hard, and achieve their dreams, it's critical that they have safe and stable housing. That's why we're calling this series Housing First, because having a place to live is key to everyone's well-being. And without it, every other aspect of our lives is at risk. We know that there is not enough safe, affordable housing for everyone who needs a place to live. This is especially true for members of the KMOJ community. So in this program today, we're going to learn what led up to today's crisis of rising rents, widespread evictions, and one of the largest black-white home ownership gaps in the country. I'm Daniel Bergen, and I'm a filmmaker and a longtime producer uh, with Twin Cities PBS. I was born and raised in South Minneapolis in the Powderhorn neighborhood. I didn't know this history, and so I wanted to put a face on the issue, but also just wanted to make um, really clear how this happened. So Dan Bergen made a documentary called Jim Crow of the North. You heard that right. Minnesota may not have had separate schools or drinking fountains, but the disparities we see today in income, education, and health flow directly from the racism baked into housing policy since the turn of the last century. Racial covenants were a big part of that policy. Language written into real estate deeds to keep whole neighborhoods white. One of the surprising things that I found in this research is 100 percent of these covenants are aimed at African-Americans. That's part of Dan's documentary featuring Penny Peterson, historian and co-founder of the Mapping Prejudice Project. The Mapping Prejudice team has so far unearthed more than 18,000 racial covenants in Minneapolis alone, as the documentary explains. The first map that Penny made was shocking. I was shocked when I saw this, and I was shocked when she started reading me some of the language of these, uh, of these racial covenants. The wording can be very different. They're working on early 20th century ideas of race. Chinese, Japanese, Negro, Moorish, Turkish, Mongolian, Hebrew, sometimes Semitic, people of African blood or descent. No Negroes or Jews. Only Caucasians, except for their domestic servants of a different race who might be domiciled with the owner. Mapping Prejudice is a research project based at the University of Minnesota. It recruits volunteers to look for racial covenants embedded in thousands of digitized Hennepin County property deeds. Then they made a map. Filmmaker Dan Bergen followed the Mapping Prejudice process because of the story it tells. So their map offers us a a touchstone 
to really kind of understand um, systemic racism in, in Minnesota. Uh, those folks are also great storytellers. They've been immersed in the research, so now they've really internalized it to the point where they can really make it plain. Dan's documentary explains that before anyone thought of writing racial covenants, racism was blatant. In the early 1900s, when some black neighborhoods were getting established, black families were run out of town by racist mobs. The story begins with a Minnesota with a small but active African-American population that post-Civil War was, was seeing some opportunity, seeing some growth, um, developing businesses, and being politically active and creating some early civil rights laws that were um, hopeful and optimistic at the turn of the last century. African-American families moved into Prospect Park, and, and these were respectable families and uh, hardworking railroad workers and their, their families and were building a home, and the neighborhood reacted in a way that was chilling. The Neighborhood Association formed up to officially kind of request and, and eventually demand that they leave, gave a statement to the press to kind of amplify their opinion, and it was brutal and direct in its language, and including um, kind of suggesting potential violence um, if the African Americans didn't leave. Racial covenants were more subtle. They forbade people of color from buying property in the first place. But soon the federal government was using racial covenants for redlining. Mapping Prejudice Project Manager Kevin Ehrman Solberg explains. When the FHA starts underwriting mortgages in the 1930s, this really is a game changer in a lot of ways. It takes a lot of risk off the banks, it places it onto the federal government, and now working class, middle class families, they're able to purchase a, a home. They're able to purchase a home as long as they're white. The FHA, they made color-coded maps of all the largest cities in the United States, and they broke cities down into four different areas. Red is considered hazardous, that's the worst. Yellow is considered definitely declining. Blue is considered still desirable. And green is considered the best. So green areas were where white people lived, and red areas, what the FHA called hazardous, well, that's where black people lived and where you couldn't get a mortgage. In Minneapolis and around the country, redlining finished what the racial covenants had begun. The FHA is being very upfront and very explicit in how they're linking spatial desirability with racial occupancy. It's this racialization of space idea. This one part of South Minneapolis was redlined specifically due to, and I'm quoting, a gradual infiltration of Negroes and Asiatics. FHA refused to give an area a green-lined designation. Again, this is the best designation that they'll, they'll offer unless, and I'm quoting again, restrictive covenants are already in place. That line's from the FHA underwriting manual. Racial covenants aren't just about discriminating against people of color. It's about enriching white people. And I think that's the part that often gets lost in this narrative. And I think it does speak to the ways that white supremacy have been embedded in really built structures and built environments. I mean, if your grandparents bought a home on Minnehaha Creek, you know, that home's worth, what, half a million? If your grandparents rented an area that was redlined and then subsequently destroyed by a freeway project, you know, you're not inheriting anything. The 1935 land use planning map used to define which place would get mortgages versus others circled these areas, called them slums, places where the quote-unquote Negroes lived. These are places to avoid. 
right? So they're going to give you substandard housing and they're going to contain you. That voice belongs to Dr. Brittany Lewis, one of the main authorities in the documentary. She is a researcher at the Center for Urban and Regional Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Her research is anything but conventional. She says the real experts are people with lived experience. So, for example, when she studies housing, she talks to people who have been evicted or excluded. She does have an agenda. She's trying to make community members part of that plan. Planning has always been intentional. Space has always been intentionally manufactured to shape and represent values. The question is whose values and for whom's benefit. Dr. Lewis says the benefit has not been for low-income people of color. But it's not like low-income people of color didn't fight back. In fact, the NAACP fought the covenants and their consequences all the way to the Supreme Court, which finally ruled in 1948 that racial covenants were unenforceable. That didn't stop landowners from writing them, though. In Minnesota, organizers like Josie Johnson and the Urban League lobbied hard for a passage of the state's Fair Housing Act in 1962. The National Fair Housing Act, which outlawed racial covenants, wasn't passed until 1968. By then, much of the damage had been done. In Minneapolis, as in most cities, the interstates were built through black neighborhoods. That, too, was intentional. This is Dr. Brittany Lewis again. My dad and their family are originally from the Central neighborhood, and then he went to Central High School. And they tell me these stories just about what they called kind of the black mecca in the Central neighborhoods. When you talk about the problem, we're talking about it from a deficits-based language. I also want to make sure we're talking about an asset-based language. I think we need to be aware of this kind of assault on the character of these places and take back that narrative in intentional ways. Taking back that narrative is what Dan Bergen is doing with this documentary. Jim Crow of the North explains how racism shaped the housing landscape. There's hope in these communities, there's strength, but there's some of the worst in the nation inequities and disparities. Jim Crow of the North explains how those housing disparities came to be. So we're all on that map somewhere, and it's important for us to see ourselves in this landscape of privilege and disenfranchisement. This isn't about homes and structures and buildings and windows. This is about people and lives and how planning has, in this case, irreparably harmed people and lives and that, you know, we've got to do something about that. This is Dan Bergen speaking about Jim Crow of the North at a housing summit on St. Paul's East Side. It's one of many community conversations the film has sparked by understanding what happened and talking about ways to repair the damage Bergen hopes and expects his film will have a lasting impact. Part of this film series, the film has been seen by, you know, maybe for a million people, maybe 300,000 at this point on the YouTube account. But more importantly, it's small local discussions like this that really tip the knowledge of this history um, into action. That's important to us, truly. Um, it so, is about so white people kind of acknowledging 
privilege and systemic racism. And I've seen it in the eyes of audiences and conversations and packed park houses and community centers. People do want to reconcile and reckon with their own place in this history as communities with privilege in some of the very neighborhoods we're discussing in the fields of work that were involved in these systems, in faith communities. So that, that's all been encouraging. And it really is about how do we, with this knowledge of this past, how do we kind of shape a better future? And, and that's, a, you know, a pretty considerable task. But we've had some great conversations and folks seem to be at the point where we've got to do something. That was filmmaker Daniel Bergen talking about his documentary, Jim Crow of the North. We hope if you haven't seen it, you find a way to check it out. It's streaming on the Twin Cities PBS website and on YouTube. Hello, thanks for joining me for Housing First. The first part of the program explained how the last century's racist housing policy led to many of the disparities we see today. Now we're going to change our lens. We're going to see how those policies and that history affected one young woman in our community. LaRonda Lake hopes her story will inspire others. To start with, she invited us into the Brooklyn Park home she shares with her husband, Khalifa, and Mittens, her cat. You come in. My husband is at work. Welcome. So welcome. Would you like a tour? There go my cat looking like, who's that coming in the house? This is Mittens. And this is a bed that I use for like guests, but I happen to be on it because I wanted to relax in the living room today. Um, So I brought it out. Yeah, I got to do laundry. Um, The kitchen is my husband's to clean, so I am just organizing this area. Um, I am LaRonda Lake. Hello, everyone. And at the moment, we're at my apartment, which I recently, almost a year ago, um, transitioned to from uh, Linquist, which is connected with the link. And um, prior to that, I was homeless. I was a homeless youth at risk for anything that had to involve with the streets. You're about to hear some of what happened to LaRonda. She can talk about it now because of what she learned at The Link, a nonprofit agency that supports homeless youth. The Link helped LaRonda find housing at the Lindquist Apartments. I just recently got married and um, I felt I was in a place where it was time for me to allow somebody else to have their turn to call that place home. You'll hear more about Lindquist Apartments. They're just a few blocks down Broadway from KMOJ. Now, LaRonda works there on the overnight shift. That's how she can afford her own place. That's where we met with her and her mentor a few months ago. My name is Faith Sorensen, and I'm the program manager at Linguist Apartments. And LaRonda was a client of mine for three years. And she's now moved out of our building and is living independently. Hello, I'm LaRonda, and I work as the overnight support desk staff. Used to live here March 2017. Recently moved out February 1st of this year, 2019. I'm about to be 26 this month. I was like 24, 23, 23, 24. 
I first went into foster care when I was six years old um, due to, you know, being uh, neglected, uh, you know, have, not having clean clothes, going to school, that sort of thing. The school system called the courts. And um, I remembered, you know, a letter that she received in the mail. I remember so much. And um, she kept skipping these court dates. So finally, when we went to court, um, we get there and I didn't understand why my mom was crying because as we're leaving the courtroom, she going a different way. So I'm thinking I'm going with her and out of nowhere, a social worker and two deputies come like, no, you got to you got to come with me. It was me and my younger, my other sister. She's three years older than me. And um, she was like, um, I'll see you later. I kept I'll get you back. You know, that sort of thing. And I was sent to St. Joseph's, me and my sister. So at that time, after St. Joseph's, we went to another lady house in Plymouth. That was my first foster home. Her name was Tammy. She kept us locked in his room. That was another bad experience. She kept us locked in his room. We couldn't go outside. All we could do is sit in our room and watch movies. And I remember just looking out in this little cul-de-sac like, where's my mom? I want my mom because this is not this is not how I'm used to living. So I was probably in foster care from like for like three years. And then my dad eventually got custody of us. Um, there was some physical abuse going on there. So I started running away from home when I was like eight and a half, nine. I went to the police station at the fourth precinct because I grew up around this area. And um, they sent me right back to the abuser. And he kept on beating me after that. Um, and eventually the state took me. Uh, went back into foster care when I was 10 years old. But this time going into foster care, I went by myself because my sister, she was scared and she didn't want to have to go through that again. She stayed with my dad. So for years longer, she was being abused. Whereas for me, I started to act up in another, another way because I didn't feel like nobody understood me. You know, why are you um, treating these people different than me? Going into foster homes, that was another sad thing. They treated their own family, and you're like the inside looking in about, you know, it was really hurtful because I'm like, I want my own family, you know? I want my mom back and stuff like that. You know, I know I'm not your real family, and I'm just here giving you money because that's what a lot of people were after is, oh, I'm going to take these people and make her look like a charity case, but I'm going to receive her money. Out of all of that money, where is me getting some new shoes for school, you know, underwear, you know, clothes? Where I didn't get none of that. I'm in going different home to home with a black garbage bag, <laughs> just one garbage bag full of old clothes that I can barely fit, but you guys are, you know... It was just really messed up. And um, immediately when you do get in foster care and you get to that age, they automatically put you on medication. I was on seven pills in the morning, three in the afternoon, and four at night. Why am I on all these medications? I'm a teenager or, you know, adolescent at that time struggling with so much. You guys are not helping the case. So then they put me in an IEP, making me seem slow and dumbing me down. You know what I'm saying? And I'm very intelligent, you know, I'm pushing that agenda upon me as if something is wrong with me and you're not taking time to understand me. You know what I'm saying? Why am I acting the way I'm acting? I was moved from a social worker to social worker. So, you know, by the time I hit age um, what, 16, I got 
they said two, three big boxes of everything that I've done in my life and how messed up I am to the point where I couldn't be in a foster home. I had to be in a group home or an institution. You try to run, they will hunt you down and like put you in a hold, which two people take your arms and a person takes your leg and you cannot move at all. We walk in a straight line, got our hands behind our backs. We can't really do anything. As I became an, a, um, a teenager, that's when I started to be like, I'm not, if it's not something that I want, I'm not going to do it. You can't force me to then do it. Then you're a rebellion. You're rebellious. Exactly. And you're exactly what they want to say you are. So now they've said, you can be perfectly fine, but now because you're acting up because of the treatment you're receiving, mm-hmm. now you're this monster. Oh, we said, we told you, we told you. You know, she was violent. She was, you know, this and that. And then... That goes into a, a person's brain, and you slowly begin to think, well, maybe I am wrong. Maybe there is something wrong with me. So, and I believe that was the case with LaRonda all along, is nothing was wrong with her. Once you're at a certain age, they just kind of, like, kick you out. At the time, I was in school and working, but I just couldn't find housing. Once I first got out, I was with my family. I realized they weren't really healthy for me, and so... um yeah, decided to move on my own. And from there, I was just, like I said, back on the streets, moving shelter to shelter. Um, Salvation Army was one of them on 10th and Curry. And um, I met a female. She gave me clothes, housing, stuff like that. And then she brings me to this guy's house, and he's like, what you going to do for us? And locked me in this house. And the next morning, like, it was just way too much. There are certain situations that I was put in that I'm glad that I got out of. It was really hard. <laughs> um, being so young, you get taken advantage of by a lot of different people. So you got to learn how to survive. If you don't, you're going to get spitting back out. So um, I just kind of had to learn and learn quick. But I always kind of knew I was different from a lot of people because I wanted more for myself. And I didn't want to have to, I, I didn't allow myself to get comfortable with the circumstances that I was in. One of my friends told me about, hey, I know you have some mental health issues that you struggle with a lot of the time. Why don't you just have a therapist? And once they see you have a therapist, um, she can help you find housing. And I spoke to her about that. And, um, you know, being, you know, resourceful, I'm going different place to different place, trying to figure out what I can do to get myself housing. And um, Salvation Army, I end up doing coordinated entry with them. And the lady left. I didn't hear from her for months. She did coordinated entry, didn't let me know. Um, they found housing for me, which was here, the Link Linquist. We had gotten her referral. We did a, an interview with her. She was accepted for housing. And then she just dropped off the face of the earth. I couldn't find her. Phone number wasn't working. She wasn't answering email. Um, I did get in touch with her, um, her mental health provider, who informed me that she was in the hospital in a coma. And they were not sure... Um, what the outcome was going to be. And that just, it was horrible. Uh, I had um, pneumonia, walking pneumonia, I want to say, and um, they didn't catch it. So I went to sleep and kind of like didn't wake up. So they put me on ECMO machine, which is a tube that goes right here. I have the scar. I had stitches. And um, it takes out the blood and puts it back in your body. It just kind of, um, it's a bypass for your heart and lungs.
lost like 30 to 40 pounds in just three three weeks or so. And from there, I had to learn how to uh, drink again, eat again, walk again. I couldn't do anything on my own. And I was like, is there some type of lady I could speak to for therapy? You know, get me started. Let me like get out of here. <laughs> I was bad finally. I was like, no, I'm not feeling this. And she came out of it, moved in, and immediately got to work on things she needed to work on. She came through an awful lot, an awful lot. And um, I'm just amazed at what she's done. So we've got somebody um, moving in tentatively on the 15th. So at this point, we're just trying to get the apartment together. Um, we try to provide everything that is needed. Um, these kids usually come in with a backpack. Um, it's a studio apartment on the third floor of Linquist. Um, it's an average, they're all pretty much the same. Um, the only difference is some of the end units have an extra window. When I first moved here, I was still at my sister's for days. It's just like, she's like, don't you got a home to go to? I'm like, that's right, I do. <laughs> uh, so she dropped me off and I came up and I stood in the door and I was like, I cried. I didn't, I didn't know what else to feel, you know? It felt unreal. It felt like it wasn't mine still. I felt like an intruder. So, um, I don't know, I felt really lonely. I was just like, it's just too many new feelings. Sometimes you want to just get back on the light rails. Like even today, I still go to like places I used to sleep at, you know, just to remind myself how, you know, thankful and appreciative I am and not to go back there, you know, after a while. And then I start to get the furniture. I start having family over, start to feel like more like, you know, oh, this is mine for real. I can't, I got to pinch myself and see if this is real. So... And that was the best feeling every time is after a long day, you, you can be like, oh, I can, I'm going home. I'm not going to call nobody like, hey, can I spend the night? You know, that sort of stuff. So that really made me happy. I didn't know anything about budgeting, uh, banking, that sort of stuff. So I got really good with, you know, that sort of resources. Like, um, I got my own credit and debit card. Um, you know, I got things that I never had. So having that and um, the stability, the mental support, any type of support, the resources, I had everything I needed. And it was just up to me to do the work. It was a lot of ways to go, but I mean, I made it, you know, and I'm going to keep making it. So Hennepin County is still requiring that um, you have to be homeless. You cannot be couch hopping. Right, and that just perpetuates a lot of things for young people. It makes it um, hard. Survival sex um, is huge. Mm -hmm. Being robbed. Um, I remember that happened. Injured, yeah. <laughs> there are mutual friends. And um, they was like, yeah, you can come crash at the house with us tonight. So I was going to go get a hotel prior to that. Somehow um, they took my EBT card and took all of my GA money off of it. And... My food stamps. I had to get a whole nother card, but I couldn't call immediately because I didn't have a phone to call them.
So, um, next day, the lady of the house who said it was so nice to me the prior night was like, get this bee out of my house and da 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 da. Like she went full on. And I was like, okay, but you guys, you, you took my stuff. How am I be able to survive? Is that, I was beyond words. I was hurt because I knew I wasn't going to be able to eat for the month. I have to go all the way. You don't have bus fare. I'm on a light rail. You're going to get a ticket. The ticket is $175. I got caught like at least two or three times because I'm homeless. They took my ID and they wrote it in the system like she didn't pay this or whatever they do. So if I were to get caught another time, I have to pay $175. And I don't even have a I don't I didn't have nothing. So how how would that have worked? You know, um trying to hurry up and get to Mary's place so I can get something to eat, stay there and get warm. You know, um do they got clean clothes that I can wear? The clothes are nice, but I mean, it's not wash. How I'm gonna wash them? Oh, I got to go to Catholic charities. How I'm gonna get there when I got to carry all of this stuff? You know, so it's a lot of, that's the biggest workout I ever had, I think. I think that's why I gained weight because I ain't walking every day. <laughs> I ain't walking as much. Seriously, you're walking literally everywhere from, you could be walking from Brooklyn Park because you got kicked out or some man tried to touch on you while you're sleeping and, you know, you got to make your way downtown. Well, what bus fare? As you're walking, you're being followed by people. You know what I'm saying? You don't know who these people are, but you got men like, hey, you know, cat calling at you. And, you know, you want to come smoke or drink? And I'm like, I don't do neither. I'm okay. I'm going to keep walking. And some people can't take no for an answer. So it's not safe at all for a woman. And then, you know, you get down here just to learn because it's a holiday. The place is closed. <laughs> you serious? That was, man, I, <laughs> there were so many times where I literally sat at the bus stop and just cried. It's been a few times I wanted to cry with you guys, but it's just, whoo, I'm a, I don't, I ain't got to deal with that no more. I'm sorry. I'm getting all emotional, but that was like being like at a bus stop and <laughs> I don't want to cry. Whoo. Y'all making me think too much. <laughs> I'm good. I want it. We are grateful to LaRonda for sharing her story with us and happy to report she's doing well. She loves her work with homeless youth and she hopes they learn from her example. You know, it's about wanting more for yourself and, you know, the staff are always here, but it's the opportunity is not going to come knocking at your door. You have to go out and you have to get it and you have to want more for yourself. And me, you know, being able to communicate with them what I want for myself and what I needed. They gave me the resources and which way to go about it. When I felt I no longer needed this housing, I was like, OK, I'm ready to give my apartment up to somebody that may need it more than I do, because this was like my level up. From here on out, I can only go up. So, you know, for the next person that stays in these apartments, use your resources and do what you have to do. After that, you can only go up, you know, take advantage. Staff at The Link say they're proud of LaRonda, especially that she uses her voice and her experiences to help others. The Link also says that prospects of homeless youth would be better if more people listen to them. 
what's really frustrating is that the, the voices of the homeless are not often heard. Um, the policies that are made are made by people who have never seen a homeless day, a hungry day, and I know that frustrates me terribly when I have to deal with agencies that the decisions are made high up, they're not working, and the people on the ground, the people that we're serving are not able to have a voice in it. And here, the actual youth get to say something, and the youth that are homeless get to be heard so everybody else can hear us, and that's why this program is really good, because they get the criticism from us. We'd be like, no, that's not going to work. We keep it real with them, and they honestly follow through on their word, and things do get changed. The link also runs shelters in other parts of the city. As you heard, it also helps youth with therapy job training, education, and financial literacy. But it believes in housing first, and it practices what it believes. Lorhonda Bird is coordinator of the new Northside Prevention Program. This program is going to go headstrong on preventing people from being homeless. That's the goal of the Northside Prevention Program. We want the community that's in the experience to let us know what the need is. So far, the Northside Prevention Program has helped with electric bills and past due rent, and it runs a shelter for homeless youth who are in school or working. The four units, I wish was 12 <laughs> or wish was 30, but we have to start from somewhere. So um, in Northside Prevention, we do have the four units for the shared house. And at least there's four youth right now that are not experiencing homelessness. They're in housing. Right. So and right now they can focus on um, all of our youth right now are either in the in the shared house are either employed, they're in school, they're doing being able to focus on what they should be focusing on at the ages of 18 to 24. If you know a young person who needs housing help, contact the link mn.org. You're listening to Housing First, part of KMOJ's special programming about housing challenges and opportunities so the community can thrive. I'm Freddie Bell. So far this hour, we've heard about the documentary Jim Crow of the North that traces the history of racist housing policies in Minneapolis that led to many of the problems low-income people of color are facing today. Then we heard from LaRonda Lake, a survivor of those policies. She entered foster care at a young age and never found a nurturing, stable place to live. Instead, she wound up at institutions and group homes and eventually on the streets. Then she got help from The Link, an outstanding service provider in our community. We also learned about the Northside Prevention Program, which offers short-term financial assistance and wraparound services to young adults or families with young adult children. We know the North Side is a place of tremendous creativity and resilience. Our community may not be wealthy, but it is strong. Many of us are thankful for the service providers, government agencies, and faith communities that support families that need help. And yet, 
The generational trauma that began with slavery is not healed. You cannot put a Band-Aid on racism and systemic discrimination. I'm Freddie Bell, and this is Housing First, special programming on challenges and opportunities in housing so our community can thrive. So far this hour, we've talked about the history of racist housing policy, and we've met a young woman who used to be homeless to better understand what she's up against. Now we're going to talk with someone who has thought a lot about the big picture and where policy choices and power lie. My name is Neeraj Mehta. I'm a North Sider. I've lived on the North Side for almost 20 years uh, and spent uh, most of my career working uh, in community development, urban planning, and as a community organizer. Now, Naraj works as Director of Learning for the McKnight Foundation, but his organizing experience was with Northsiders trying to find and maintain their housing. We should set a goal. We should say every community in Minneapolis or Minneapolis as a whole, 35 or 40 percent of all of our units should be permanently affordable. And we should just say, what does that cost? And we should just pay for it um, and recognize the benefits of equitably housing your community outweigh any of the financial cost it took to do that. Like many of the experts we spoke to, Naraj Mehta says housing is having a moment. Elected officials in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and statewide are more sympathetic to renters than they have been in years. At the Franklin Avenue encampment last winter, data show that housing instability is on the rise, and voters' fears about changes in their own neighborhoods has put housing front and center. All this in the middle of an unprecedented building boom, which unfortunately is mostly market rate and not affordable. Do we have a cultural shift that's happened over the course of the last 10 or 15 years and that people want to return to the city? Absolutely. And are we creating and investing in these playgrounds and places for people to have cool bars and restaurants and yoga studios and natural kids stores and you know what I mean? Whatever. Yes. And are we using public dollars to help make that happen? Absolutely. So public money helps developers build housing in neighborhoods that used to be low income. Neighborhoods that developers ignored or, as Meta says, disinvested in. What's happening is that places that were disinvested are becoming invested and who's benefiting from that are people with money because housing is expensive in those places and values rise. And so people are going to feel these pressures of displacement. So when I was doing interviews you know, five years ago, I would often hear from elected officials Uh, There's room enough for all of us that, yes, there are more households with more income coming into neighborhoods that have been predominantly people of color. And yes, the values are rising, but nobody's being displaced yet. This was five years ago. And I would ask them five years ago, what do you think will happen as this continues to occur? And I think people had this idea, well, we have, quote unquote, enough time to address this. And of course we didn't. And so the values of properties and houses and rents have gone up. The influx influx of a different demographic type have come in and all sorts of pressures and complexities have resulted, including displacement. Niraj Mehta says it's not that North Minneapolis doesn't want new coffee shops and yoga studios. It does. 
but it doesn't want to price long-time residents out. There are renters who are being displaced, and their apartments are being converted to being twice as expensive, and it's happening in the first-string suburbs, and Class B and C apartment buildings are being converted to luxury apartments. And so displacement is happening. And I guess you could say also gentrification is happening because the demographics are changing. And yet, you have people who will say to me, when I say this is happening in North Minneapolis, and here's the examples I can give you, well, what did you want it to stay the same? And I'm like, nobody here, as I said this earlier, nobody here wants it to stay the same. We want all the money. We want all the investments. We just want to be the ones who benefit from it. We want to be the ones who get to define what's happening who gets to live in the properties, own the businesses, shop at the places, and it doesn't look like 50th in France, and it doesn't look like the North Loop. And um, and so the question becomes, how do you do that? How do you put ownership, control, and self-determination in the hands of communities who have historically lived in these communities that have been marginalized and displaced and disinvested from? So he says housing is having a moment. Northsiders should seize that moment to make their voices heard. There's so many stories when people that society has rendered nobody, when they organize and show the world that they are somebody, they make things happen. And we have examples in our history in which people organize and they demand justice and they get it. That was Naraj Mehta, a housing policy expert and longtime Northsider. Now we're going to talk nuts and bolts of real estate. We're going to meet a broker who started out trying to make a living and is now trying to make change. Her name is Cianne Thomas, and she has a good story to tell. She's been buying and selling property for almost 20 years. I'm Cianne Thomas. I am a native Eastsider, Eastside Pride, woohoo! And I own a boutique real estate brokerage, ABC Realty, uh, right here on the east side of St. Paul. I uh, thought long and hard about what I wanted my brokerage to look like. It had to look like the communities it served and um, and speak the languages too. <laughs> so, so I have uh, a team of seven realtors. So I have two Hmong realtors and I have one uh, Spanish-speaking realtor, one white realtor, three African-American female realtors, and then I have myself. I'm African-American, North Minneapolis, East St. Paul. Um, they have a lot of similarities in that they have high populations of low-wage low earners and, and black and brown folks. You know, they have um, they have a story told in the media of all things bad and, and not enough good. One of the good stories Sian wants to tell is about new housing on Railroad Island, a formerly neglected east side neighborhood hemmed in by railroad tracks and 35E. This was uh, a dump site, and so uh, all the soil had to be mitigated. Here on the top of the hill, look at those views. Those views are spectacular, right? So here on the top of the hill um, will be the community solar garden. And um, down there where you see all those white tubes, that, that's the fruit orchard, orchard. And then the greenhouse is a permanent greenhouse for urban roots, which is a youth 
um, job skills. Cianne Thomas stops the car to show us the view from the new development called Rivoli Village. We're on the bluff overlooking downtown St. Paul, just east of 35E. And so these are traditional two-story homes here with a, uh, an attached uh, two-car garage on the front. And I think um, every single family here, except for one, is a family of color. Think of it. Affordable home ownership, a renewable energy source, healthy food, and job training rolled into one development. It took 20 years to happen. Cianne Thomas is a broker for Village on Rivoli now, but she wasn't involved the whole time. Her journey is worth exploring. I had a great gig. I was a corporate trainer for a large insurance industry. Loved my job. I loved training. I was uh, pregnant with my third, and I had a two-year-old at home. And Ishmael, my oldest, was going to go to full-day kindergarten. And I worked second shift, 2 to 10. I did not want to be a weekend mom. And I knew I could sell because I was driving a free Mary Kay car. So Cianne got her real estate license and went to work for Remax. The economy was good, and she found her niche working with first-time homebuyers. And I remember in 2006, I showed the very first vacant house. And I'm looking at <clears throat> the wall where they're marking the heights of the kids, just like at the wall in my house where I marked the heights of my children. And I thought to myself, wow, I wonder where the family went. It seems like they left in a hurry. It was like they left in the middle of the night. I had never shown a property like that before. And that was in 2006. That year, 60% um, of everything I showed was vacant. It was becoming um, very mainstream for me to, to get these phone calls from people that needed help. Um, and then I can't tell you, you know, how many people I counseled to just walk from their mortgage. I would ask, you know, how is your family? Is your family healthy? Yes, they're healthy. Safe? Yes, they're safe. Pack your shit and move on. <laughs> because that's what the people with money were doing. They were doing strategic foreclosures. And But the people... The people that were hardworking people, they were trapped in their, their, their own psychology of shame and guilt. Cianne says that after 2006, her family started moving in with relatives or to outer suburbs. She lost track of them. People were displaced in mass. Here on the east side, I mean, we had some sections of these neighborhoods um, where uh, we had whole blocks that were vacant. Cianne didn't make money during the recession, and she watched some neighborhoods become sad and dangerous as houses stood empty. They were, you know, magnets for um, homeless people trying to, trying to get out of the cold. You know, they were magnets for uh, drug use. They were magnets for trafficking, trafficking people. You know, so, um, you know, that, the, that's the dark side, right? The underbelly of this foreclosure crisis. And then came the REITs, Real Estate Investment Trust, scarfing up the properties. They were buying bad, bad mortgages uh, from the banks for pennies on the dollar. So you had to buy a whole block 
right? You are of paper of of, of um, mortgage debt that was um, foreclosed. In many many cases, um, the bank was Deutsche Bank. You know, not even on the ground in the the United States. So you had all these banks, and they were not you know mowing the grass. They weren't shoveling the snow. And Park and Rex was not equipped to absorb all of this additional, uh, additional work. It's it's hu- it was huge. With the economy recovered in 2012, 2013, the banks put some properties back on the market at higher prices. Public money had been used to tear down other vacant houses, so the east side was dotted with empty lots ripe for development. The nonprofit Eastside Development Corporation got into the real estate business. Deanne Thomas had been on the board, and she stepped up to manage the brokerage. We were working with homeowners um, that were trying to stabilize their blocks because they were literally the only occupied home on the block. But so, so we started doing this community building work in the CDC around, you know, these vacant lots. Um, and this came out of um, maybe Detroit. You do you do art on the the boards that board up the doors and the windows and so there there was a whole kind of movement around you know beautifying right these these uh, blighted and and foreclosed homes. After the foreclosure crisis, when the real estate business was booming again, Cianne couldn't help thinking about what she learned about the housing gap and the unmet needs of the community. She decided to open her own boutique brokerage. She's enrolled in a leadership training program. One of the requirements of the program was some kind of project. So Cianne decided to convene a panel to talk about the housing gap. She enlisted her millennial son, Ishmael, and his friend, Ben. We didn't talk at people. We, we used uh, Ben and Ishmael's flat power structure <laughs> over and over. And I tell you, people were... The, the stories that we heard were just profound. The event was held at the East Side Freedom Library in spring 2019. Turnout exceeded expectations. The flat power structure, where everyone has equal say, encouraged people to speak up. The first event led to a summer film series, and each meeting drew more people. We were, we were discussing um, the film Jim Crow of the North. And we, by the way, that... that uh, that film and conversation, 134 people. Um, so we were in the circle and we're talking, uh, and essentially the conversation is a black-white conversation um, um, arising out of the film Jim Crow of the North and the history of um, housing and its impact on communities of color here in the Twin Cities. And these two young men were in my circle and I don't know um, what specific cultural um, culture they were from, but he says, you know, this is important conversation, um, but it is distilled down to black and white, and we're brown, and we're wondering where, where, where are we at in this conversation? And I was floored. I was stunned. Wow, the limiting power of language. Right, many brown folk <laughs> have been marginalized, you know, and and that was his point, you know, and and but that was the authentic authentic nature of these circle conversations. So as CN was growing ABC Realty, 
She made it a tool of community organizing. Her brokerage became a founding member of the Eastside Housing Justice Coalition, which is organizing on behalf of low-income residents. What does organizing mean? Training leaders to work with elected officials to make housing more affordable and build more affordable housing. Specifically, the coalition is interested in three publicly owned sites on the east side, two former golf courses, and the old boys' totem town. There's just not enough affordable housing in, in rental and ownership. You know, people are, are being uh, priced out. People are being priced out, and they can't afford housing. We're back on Railroad Island, where few people imagine the pretty little neighborhood with its own orchard and solar garden. That could be because few people asked the community what should happen where they lived. So we have three huge opportunities to come together as community and inform what happens on those sites so that it serves us and doesn't just happen to us. They will have tuck-under uh, garages. So six of them will have a one-car tuck-under garage and one will have a two-car tuck-under garage. And uh, you can see that they're putting in the little driveway between, so they'll, they'll go down the hill. There will be 16 of these total. I think anything's possible, definitely. Anything's possible. Now, what will it look like? I can't say. Right. But anything is possible. And, and if anything, you know, we, we will we a whole lot of people will know a whole lot more about about the process than they did before. As we said at the top, these interviews were recorded before the pandemic and before the murder of George Floyd. Recently, we made a round of calls to see how everyone is doing. Cianne told us she was applying for a part-time remote job to keep ABC Realty afloat. She had to lay off two of the staff. The recession dampened prospects for revitalization in Dayton's Bluff anytime soon. Cianne hopes she can get back to community building in 2021. Stay Home Minnesota did not turn out to be a good message for everyone, like the 10,000 Minnesotans without homes. The Minnesota Coalition for the Homeless says 39% of them are African American. Congregate shelters are dangerous places during a pandemic, but at least survival is possible outside. There's better news from LaRonda Lake. She's still working at Lindquist Apartments and enjoying her job. She's grateful to be working more hours since her husband got laid off. They renewed their lease on their apartment and deferred their dreams of buying a house. 
In the Twin Cities and throughout Minnesota, many political leaders get that safe and stable housing is necessary, not just for individuals, but for public health and the well-being of the state. We at KMOJ are committed to helping figure out how to adapt to the new normal so everyone can be housed and our community can thrive.